Welcome to the Film Comment Podcast. I'm Devika Girish. And I'm Clinton Krug. We're the editors of Film Comment. A few weeks ago, the British documentarian Adam Curtis caused a stir with his newest mega project. The six-episode, eight-hour BBC documentary, Can't Get You Out of My Head, An Emotional History of the World. The series is the latest in Curtis's 30-year run of documentaries that stitch together archival footage, drawn almost entirely from the BBC's archives, into epic origin stories of the modern political and cultural world. Can't Get You Out of My Head draws links between a number of figures across history, including Zhang Qing, Michael X, Afeni and Tupac Shakur, Edouard Limono, and more to chart the emergence of the global economy, the rise of individualism, and the spread of conspiracy theories. In this episode, we debate Curtis's aesthetic strategies and political arguments with two old friends, FLC programmer Dan Sullivan and Violet Luca, a former film comment editor who now works as web editor at Harper's Magazine. We hope you enjoy our lively conversation. Hi, welcome to the Film Comment Podcast. We have two excellent, very exciting guests today. Uh, do you want to introduce yourself, Dan? Uh, hi, I'm Dan Sullivan. Uh, I'm a programmer at Film at Lincoln Center, and I'm happy to be here. Hello. As Adam Curtis might say, the ghosts of the past have returned. This is Violet Luca, formerly of the Film Comet podcast, currently at Harper's Magazine, web editor. Uh, and I'm very happy to be here. With a well-rehearsed introduction. Fuck off! It's obvious. I've been listening to his. Sh- I've been. Li- I. I have like the Adam Curtis narration in my head. I know we're okay. we're all there. We've we're unleashed all there. the dark forces of the past in this the, podcast. The, old, the new order is actually like the old order underneath. Nothing had changed. The age of individualism <laughs> is upon us, as we all a cacophony of voices. It's also just for listeners who probably won't hear this because this will probably be cut. This is it's 9 a.m. in the morning. We're all tired. Meanwhile, at 9 p.m., th- four prognosticators were, were, oh, no, we're, <laughs> we're having early. a conversation which would change. Yeah. Okay, we will save the impersonations for you know later in the podcast, but I'm very glad that we have Dan and Violet with us today, old friends. And I have to say I'm intimidated to co-host this with Clint with Violet in the room, the OG host. Uh don't show us up too much, Violet, and don't judge us too much either. I'm not intimidated. Bring it on. All right. Bring on the hosting. <laughs> Host off. Okay. Let's get started talking about our subject for the day. Adam Curtis and his eight-hour-long six-part documentary, BBC documentary, Can't Get You Out of My Head, a kaleidoscopic history, intellectual history of... We should say that the sub subtitle of the title, it's Can't Get You Out of My Head, An Emotional History of the World, right? And that's sort of, I guess, what he's trying to do. But wasn't Bitter Lake also? Bitter Lake was also an emotional history of Afghanistan, right? I think, oh, that was the subtitle? Yeah, that's what uh, Bitter Lake, I thought. Maybe he it? makes emotional histories. I'm looking at the, the title card now and it just says bitter lake in, in teal letters so. uh, uh, okay maybe that was a it was an early 
I, I was doing a lot of research, so maybe that was an early, that was a well, working title, the working we'll, subtitle. As we'll get into, all, all of yeah. the films are the emotional history. Of yeah, I think that's probably an accurate description. Dan, do you want to kind of uh, give us a thumbnail sketch of Can't Get You Out of My Head? <laughs> sure. Um, yeah, so it's the, the latest film by the, uh, the English documentarian Adam Curtis. Um, kind of distinctive figure in documentary who has worked primarily for the BBC. Um, his films, uh, yeah, they're produced for broadcast, like, uh, you know, like on the BBC and on their, you know, in their whole sort of- Their like, platforms. Yeah, their whole like distribution, exhibition apparatus and what have you. I but player, they, I believe it's called. Yeah, but more, actually, but actually, uh, it'd be like maybe simplest to just say that like he Adam Curtis posts all of his films to his YouTube page so that is like probably the most salient uh place where uh one can watch I think pretty much all of them but um mm -hmm. uh yeah no Adam Curtis kind of like rose to notoriety in the early 90s this film he made called Pandora's Box and uh you know every you know year or so every couple of years he would put out a new uh uh, sort of highly associative, really kind of dense uh, intellectual, historical uh, documentary, um, very like essayistic and comprised, uh, you know, almost exclusively of like uh, material uh, pulled from the BBC's archives and assorted other archives. Um, in any event, uh, this new one uh, can't get you out of my head, sort of uh, is taking up a number of the themes that, you know, are kind of manifest in his last film, uh, hypernormalization, which kind of uh, dropped right at the, at the beginning of the Trump presidency. Um, this film is, of course, coming out right at the beginning of the Biden presidency. And it is, as is typical for Curtis, just like an extremely uh, digressive, uh, kind of deliberately meandering. Genealogical, as some would say. Indeed, yeah, indeed. But in short, yeah, no, he's just a, he's a documentarian who, who is churning out intellectual histories that for me are, you know, quite unlike sort of on any level of filmmaking. So, uh, so there, yeah, that is my uh, sort of clumsy precy of <laughs> can't get you out of my head. Oh, thanks. That was, that was actually very good. Well done, Dan. Let's give him a hand. Um, Don't patronize the guests. That's my top tip. Yeah, we're not going to. We're, we're not going to. It's a good tip. That's a good one. Well said, Violet. <laughs> Thanks a lot, Violet. Um, well, hypernormalization kind of uh, broke out, I think. In 2016 it was there was a lot of chatter about it in the u.s because i think everybody was scrambling to explain what was happening in the world to themselves and people uh, were shocked that they had no narrative to believe in well let me let me let me back up a second because i would you know adam curtis um i would say like when i first saw his films they were a huge intellectual and emotional impact on me i'm talking about like 2003 2004 so this mm -hmm. is in the middle of the Iraq war you would never see, I mean I don't want to sound like Mark Cousins but you would really never see a very bold leftist uh 
telling of history on television. You would not see that anywhere. And he was taking apart, you know, these Bush era things that, you know, these things that you would not see, there were no alternatives on television. And furthermore, he was making them cool. You know, it was like a cool and, and so much leftism, or at least when I was in high school and kind of trying to get into the movie, it wasn't like, it was a very different era, I guess, in terms of media availability now, because the internet is, you know, so fractured and individualized. Okay, okay. And, you know, the, 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 we, you know, you have a multitude of choices. And back then there wasn't, there, that did not exist. And so for, to see like this, you know, the power of nightmares or century of the self, that was a huge, that was like a huge, exciting moment. And, um, and I thought they were really elegantly done. It was like uh, picking up narratives. A, a volume of Zizek for the first time. Uh, maybe, maybe. Uh. Um, but I mean, I, you know, but then suddenly I realized that, you know, because there, there would be parts of these where I would be confused, or at least I would feel like I was kind of not entirely clear what he was saying. And I would think, okay, well, I'm just, I just don't know what, I, I'm just not smart enough to get what he's saying. And that's not true because I think, I mean, I, I, I know more now than I did then, thank God, as one should. And I, I mean, it's just, he does a bad job of portraying these histories. And I mean, I don't even want, like, I feel like that's the most common uh, attack on Curtis. And I feel like we could talk about that later, just how badly he mangles certain very simple concepts and sometimes it's just like you know kind of half explaining something to completely misrepresenting something like in Kikichiyad may had the opioid epidemic like that I think that is kind of the way he presents it like that's borderline evil I would say but um uh you know he the films keep getting longer and longer and longer and I feel like they're saying less and less and less or at least I see the formula now, I see the patterns now and they irritate me and the big statements irritate me. And I, I mean, I don't know, it's just perhaps because he is pulling from so heavily from the BBC archive that the films tend to be entirely told from the perspective of, or majority told from the perspective of the West. So it's, it's, he's always talking about like, we need these new narratives, you know, this is, this is the colonialism, this is British, this is the British Empire, this is the American Empire doing this, that, and the other. And it's like, well, if you really wanted to turn things on its head, why don't you relocate your narrative? Why don't you start telling it from somewhere else? And why don't you tell it a little bit better? Because I think that's the, you know, we, like, if you have a bunch of people, you know, like me when I was, uh, 19 wanting to know more about America's crimes then yeah you're gonna you'll find that audience and they'll eat up whatever you say but if you really want to kind of change the world and change how people think about the world you would do the work of you know decentering the west because isn't that the I mean, I, I mean, because the ultimate argument against cultural imperialism is that, well, America, you know, maybe you aren't that hot shit. Maybe people in these other countries can think for themselves and they can opt into American culture or they cannot or they take what they want from it, you know, and acknowledging the complexity of that. And I don't think 
that's the sort of thing that Adam Curtis is interested in because he knows his audience. Because, you know, back in the BitTorrent days, when I was first watching these, this was what, this is who drifted toward these. And now he just makes films for that audience. And I think that's unfortunate. Which is a bigger audience now. It's a much bigger bigger audience because there's more lies. <laughs> but I mean, I think that one important thing here is that like it's, you say his, he speaks from a Western perspective, but it's very also uh, a British perspective. And his understanding yes. of America, I think, especially in this new film is- A little crunchy. <laughs> uh, not the uh, greatest. And of China, I mean, that's kind of we'll we'll get into that but you know what you're saying violet uh that western perspective especially for me it's myopia comes out most prominently when he's talking about china in this film and i just want to you know just so viewers have an idea of what you know if if they've not seen can't get you out of my head yet just to give a little picture so it's composed almost entirely out of uh footage drawn from the bbc archive because he's a journalist he's been uh, you know, for decades, a journalist for the BBC. And I was reading this interview he did with Sight and Sound for their last issue. And he's very firm about calling him himself a journalist and not a filmmaker. Which is a big problem. And not a historian, even though he's right. dealing entire, almost entirely with historical events. He says he's more interested in, in stories. And, and so this six episode, nearly eight hour epic is connecting a lot of different stories. Um, of individuals, I would say, you know, individuals who stand out among the eddies of history, so to speak. So we have Jiang Qing, uh, you know, I'm just, just listing out a few so people get the sense of the scope of, of the series or show. I don't know what to call it, film, show, project. Anyway, so we have her, we have Carrie Thornley, who is apparently the guy who basically planted the idea of the Illuminati in the world. Uh, you know, we have um, via Playboy. Limanov. <laughs> yeah. Sorry? Via the Playboy classifieds, right? Yeah. Oh, yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> who else do we have, guys? We have Limanov, the novelist, the Russian novelist who the punk founded novelist. the nationalist U Bolshevik. The national Bolshevik. The Nazbols, yeah. Uh, yeah. Michael X, uh, Fanny Shakur, Tupac's mom. Um, Tupac, Tupac himself. Tupac himself. himself later on. Yeah. Tupac, we should say. Uh, <laughs> Tupac and his uh, hologram. Yes. Um, yeah. No, I mean, but there's so many characters. I mean, I, I, Devika, I, I appreciate what uh, you're trying to do, but like, there's so many little characters, and again, right. they're so they're sketched. So, I mean, I think of the trans woman who sort of pops Julia up. Julia Grant. Julia yes. Grant who pops up, and then she goes away, and it's like she, her story is used in such a really narrow way that you have no greater sense of her. But then there are these other characters, these bigger, the, the protagonists, let's say, like Jiang King, who are a Fanny Shakur, or, you know, um, Michael X. Michael X. I mean, I would, I would call him more of a minor character because he just kind of like, it's frustrating. But Jiang Qing is the character who that who's retur he returns to Yes. Consistently. And it's sort of like the linchpin for the whole. And this and his telling of her story is really the the story around which all the other threads kind of revolve. Yes. <laughs> to mix metaphors. <laughs> and these are all kind of stitched into a large story. It's hard to, like you said, Violet, it's hard to like pin this down, but I guess it's the story of how 
what we've sort of lost in the age of individualism and how that has sort of, I guess, evacuated our ability to be certain about anything and made us retreat into these uh, bubbles where there's no larger political purpose. Uh, the age of mass action has dissolved and it's been filled in by all these conspiracy theories which have just uh, shaken the you know, very fabric of a shared reality, I guess. So he kind of ends with Brexit and Trump. And the storming of the cat of the capital, which I think is very slapped on, <laughs> like very clearly slapped. It on. was like, yeah, he was literally he was almost done. I think he was almost done editing the film, and then that happened. It's like, oh shit, okay. Yeah. <laughs> but Dan, did you want to uh, kind of weigh in? Um, I know that you were more persuaded than uh, Violet was, and I'd yeah. be curious to know. Well, wait a minute, wait a minute. I'm I'm not gonna say that I'm not. Here's the thing. I'm sympathetic. Let me let me make this clear. I'm sympathetic to the arguments, but I don't think that the arguments are quite. I don't know because it, it makes you sound like a fucking pedant, right? It makes you sound like oh, eh, can't say that on television. But it is like when you misrepresent somebody like Richard Hofstadter and his theory, you know, and well, his that famous- part was that part really just like made me. Sorry. Yeah. Woodrow Wilson and. Uh, Woodrow Wilson and the birth of a nation. I mean, there's all these, I I was watching this yesterday. Sorry, Dan, we will give this over to you. But you know, what you're saying, Violet, is exactly how I felt, um, is that I think he is getting at things that are worth exploring. But the way he phrases them or the way he like builds these montages sometimes feels so wrong. I mean, he, he frequently uses the word they, right? Like, they decide, and he's sometimes using for technocracy, for a whole country, for a set of politicians. And there's these ge- very generalized references and these like, uh, he's assigning subjecthood. He also says us constantly and who and Right, who is, and, like, and, who is and I us? do think that's kind of harmful. Like when you said, when you brought up Julia Grant, that's a place where he literally says, after talking about her, he transitions to the new politics of individualism where it the belief was that self-expression would liberate you, right? I think that's quite bad to use, you know, her story as um, this pioneering trans woman uh, in in the UK to, you know, use that to kind of characterize a whole era of of what he paints as a failed politics. And to call what she did to say what Julia Grant was trying to achieve was a self-expression is also just like pretty reductive in a way that it's it's not the same as like it's not the same as like the Jefferson airplane you know like I'm not like <laughs> or like wh- whoever like this is not this is not painting that she what she's trying to do right I mean that th- it's it's it but I think this question of subjecthood is really key because it's the politicians who are supposedly running the world have subjecthood and the masses, even those involved in social protest movements do not. And then quite frankly, um, when you're talking about the Panthers being infiltrated by uh, the CAA, the FBI, that was happening for decades before right. with leftist movements. Like people were worn out by this. Like they, the FBI was successful. They, they achieved their goal. But it's not presented that in that way. It's presented as like people were tired. They lost their idealism. They gave up the ghost. And it's like, oh. 
but you know that's the kind of thing like even with the story of julia grant i think there's something underneath that he's trying to get at that's worth articulating about how maybe ideas of radical liberation have been co-opted by yeah you know, they have uh, right the idea of like you know living your truth is uh, or like expressing yourself most fully is the kind of threshold of what liberation looks like. I think he's conflating and like really muddying that by just randomly slapping on the, you know, the narrative of um, trans liberation onto that, which has a much deeper complex history that comes out of collective formations. You know, it's not just some lady who decided like- She's gonna be, she's gonna disregard what her psychologist told her to do. Like that's literally, the, right. the, it's a fucking, yeah, it's, it's, it's full. And then of course there's these big generalizations. Well, yeah. And again, it's like hard to, cause again, I think the trap that I was alluding to earlier where you just sound like a pedant is when you try to address the generalizations and you try to say, okay, so this is, what do you mean by this? Because he will just steamroll through things and not make clear what he's saying. And it's just kind of like, you have to fill in the association for yourself. And if the only resource you have is his film, I don't think the what you're gonna pull from it is gonna be coherent or correct. I will say that he does really compelling stuff with the archival footage. There's some incredible, there's some incredible footage uh I, the the bird flying around the uh the young communist meeting at after the soviet union dissolves like that's kind of incredible the great grandfather of birdie sanders right exactly <laughs> okay but we're bill dan please take the stage now because i feel like we've like unfairly like stacked we steamrolled up, you, know, you one and so it's, it's unfair yeah well, so do you guys like the like the movie or? <laughs> Uh, I don't yeah. know what I like anymore because of this new age of conspiracy. You believe in nothing. <laughs> okay, 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 talk. Uh, all right. Um, I don't know what I'm supposed to talk about, but I guess I'll speak positively about uh, the, uh, the film. Maybe, I guess I, I just want to like clarify kind of the, the lens through which I tend to watch his work, Adam Curtis's work. I, I think um, you know, it's immaterial to me whether he considers himself a journalist or a historian or whatever. He, you know, it's probably both those things. But I think most primarily, and it's been most helpful for me in thinking about his work to think about him as a as a propagandist, um, like an especially effective propagandist. Uh, you know, um, he, he would probably be horrified to be like compared to uh, you know what I guess would be kind of like the American kind of like right wing. Uh, his American right-wing counterpart is like a Dinesh D'Souza or, you know, or what have you. But he is. <laughs> yeah, yeah, no, and, and, and you know, I'm, on some level, I think he knows that. So, like, I guess just as an object, I tend to treat any, like, Adam Curtis film, you know, with that, with that in mind. Like, it, how does this function while well, it's, it's, it's functioning in this propagandistic way? Um, to what end? And I think that's where the, the consideration of like to what end, uh, I think that's where the work becomes more interesting because, you know, like I noticed in listening to you three, um, you know, I think a lot of, uh, a lot of what you were saying uh, had, had to do with like his voiceover narration primarily, the, the assertion of like, the assertion of like the author's presence in the text right. at all times. And he's constantly talking to you and recounting histories and so on. Um, and, 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 you know, much of what you guys are saying is like, obviously 
like correct. Uh, and and I think you know in recent years, you know he like he uh, yeah he has like a, a tendency to in incorporate some. He makes some pretty corny decisions. Uh, he's definitely under. He's he's like relentlessly earnest, which I think is actually interesting considering the sort of intellectual milieu, milieu that he's coming out of, and that uh, he's in part like addressing with the films, right? Um, uh, but at the same time, like I don't think the conclusion he wants us to 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 arrive at uh, is particularly like. Uh, it's, there's nothing like do especially dogmatic about it. It actually just makes me as a viewer more curious about certain things that he that he just glosses over or sort of touches on very briefly. I don't know that I don't know that despite the the this kind of like really intense form of the the very long document the very long voiceover driven uh, documentary. I don't know that. The presentation of things is quite as authoritative you know there are deliberately i think gaps in there that are you know it's not i don't think that the film is like really trying to explain everything you know what i mean well then well then what is it trying to do other than just like peel back the layers of uh... well okay the, yeah so what i think what i think it is trying to do and it's contained you know kind of overly simple you know over simplistically <laughs> too simplistically in the title uh which is uh i think it's an affect machine kind of the, the you know the movie i find it like i find uh much of it very moving um you know there are a lot of juxtapositions of like image and sound that i have no idea why i was responding uh you know as can you, can you give an example yeah well i think music is actually a very uh important thing to think about he's kind of well known for using like, you know, like Aphex Twin and Burial and so on to sort of conjure this very like capitalist realist atmosphere of the future. Brian Eno too, OG. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> There's a strong pop element to- Right, I was gonna get to that. But with like the electronic music, I think it's kind of, yeah, it's just kind of like the serenity of doom after the future has been foreclosed, like this kind of this kind of thing. My favorite move is when, he, is when he's like, there is no such thing as a conspiracy theory. Bong, bong. And then it shows like a dark building looming over a poor innocent individual. But then he also, he's like, um, a friend of mine pointed out to me that he's like, uh, he appears to be like a real like late aughts, like pitchfork guy. Phosphorescent, I think is like multiple yeah. cool songs in this one. There are a lot of, there are a lot of bands on the soundtrack that I've like, I've seen the name and never in a million years felt compelled to, to give him a chance. And like honestly, like, like there's like a Ravenette song in there that it's in the trailer too, and it's just like the deployment of that song just completely works for me. <laughs> it's like, oh. I mean, it's it, it. I think he's also coming from that British like uh, uncut magazine world, but it's like it reminds me of the European commercials, like Vodafone commercials that would use like a fall song, you know, and you're just like, whoa, this, like, and you're like, wow, Vodafone is cool <laughs> for like thirty seconds. You're listening to the Film Comment Podcast. This episode is brought to you by MUBI, a curated streaming service showing exceptional films from around the globe. Every day, MUBI premieres a new film, each one thoughtfully handpicked. From new directors to award winners, beautiful, interesting, incredible movies, there's always something new to discover. 
I've really been enjoying digging into the everyday miracles of Eric Romare, a kind of mini retrospective of some of that director's lesser seen works, including the incisive humane portrait of municipal government, the tree, the mayor, and the media tech. And I recommend checking out Movie's excellent collection of shorts by new and old masters like Simon Liang, Mati Diop, Jonas Mikas, Ariane Labed, and many more. If you'd like to check out these films too, you can try Mubi free for 30 days at mubi.com slash film comment. That's mubi.com slash film comment for a whole month of great cinema for free. I think why Devika, Clinton, and I are getting so tied up in the presentation is because of how just socialize like socialized ideas of how we of what we consider an authoritative voice because he has this very patrician voiceover and you know the confidence with which he is presenting these ideas even though they are sometimes just association of association of an idea is not unlike Christopher Hitchens or Jordan Peterson you know, this is not a female voice. This is not an accented voice. Rather, it's an act, it's the right kind of accented voice. And it's not a voice that speaks, you know, ever with uncertainty or with, you know, any sort of other, you know, it's it's what it's an idealized voice. And and like Hitchens or like Jordan Peterson, he is speaking in a way that's getting at stuff, getting at the obvious thing and attacking it and saying, you this is why that's bullshit. And again, like Christopher Hitchens, Peter, Jordan Peterson, there's some things they get right and there's some things they get wrong. And like, that is why conspiracy theories exist. Richard Hofstadter says it himself and, and you know, Paris, paranoid style of American politics. There are seeds of truth in these, you know, conspiracies. And there are seeds of truth in what Adam Curtis says and Hitchens and Peterson, like, yeah, you should make your fucking bed. but. You know, he, he the certitude prevents a lot of people from doing their own research. And I know this because I've, I've, I've been, you know, I've sort of lived with his films for like, God help me, like 20 years now. And, you know, they, they just are, they, people leave with the sense that they've unlocked something secret and they don't have that intellectual curiosity that you do. And I don't ever think that we have to like protect viewers from anything, but like, you know, that, or that we have to be afraid of, of it's just like, it, I wish this was a better film, basically. And I wish it didn't rely so heavily on, you know, portray of, of these very, you know, the old ways. I right? mean, could, could this be a better <laughs> film though? That's, I mean, like how, what would that? It would be shorter. I will say that what Dan said about it being this like affect machine, Dan, I do see that because there are moments where I felt like so hypnotically taken by it. I, I completely agree that it's really moving in parts. I don't think it's too badly made either. You know, I mean, there is, you see so many bad essay films and didactic essay films, and there is a beautiful sense of rhythm um, to the ways he presents it. And I also do think that you're right that there is the authoritativeness is not quite as complete, especially when there the images sometimes work against, not work against, but are, don't exactly correspond to what he's saying. And I think there are some moments opened up there where the 
the seams are not quite so, you know, clean and tight. But I, it's not just his voice or how he presents himself. You know, his telling of history, I noticed, very rarely touches upon race, even when he's talking about imperialism, it's, it's never taking on, it's never exploring the idea of how racism or the, you know, you know, how racial difference or even gender play into the rubrics that he's outlining. You know, when he's talking about Britain's relationship with China, it's very much this, uh, you know, abstracted idea of how geopolitics works without, you know, those histories. And when you say, Clint, like, I, maybe this is a bad comparison to make, but when you say, like, what, how could it be better? I kept thinking, because I've been thinking a lot about John Acompa recently in Black Audio Film Collective, and I thought of the Stuart Hall project, you know, and that's a similar use of montage, right? I mean, I think that's what Adam Curtis is known for his montage techniques, and that's what is also really compelling, the way he stitches together footage. But then you see something like the Stuart Hall project or the unfinished conversation, which are also using sound and image, and they're stitching together these uh, unresolved tapestries, you know, tapestries that don't amount to a thesis, but they are these tapestries that tell the story of the world through collections of archive footage. And in this case of the Stuart Hall project, a narration that is formed through speeches and, you know, things that Stuart Hall has said. And they open themselves to a hybridity that feels much more compelling, that's actually trying to say something, you know, um, that's actually trying to stitch that bridge between an individual history and a collective history and find something in there uh, rather than, I don't know, the, the thing that kept bogging me down in this one is, you know, it's kind of oscillating between the idea that the age of individualism means collective and structural formations don't work. And at the same time, it's like this particular line where that, um, you know, Deng Xiaoping, he, destroyed all dreams of democracy and erased the ideas of revolution, right? But can one person destroy all dreams of democracy in a country, in the most populous country in the world? Yeah, I mean, and also I think that he created the entire, like the idea of the global economy. I think that he basically was like, with this one idea, dang, like created the world. And he unleashed the drug of consumerism that was as powerful as opium. I mean, I mean, how seriously can you take that though? I guess. I mean, and, and the question is like, people take this seriously. So then like, we can say that this is not that that's just in a, you know, uh, a move that he's making to evoke some idea of history that he's going that, and it's okay to just kind of gesture towards it. But I think that like what Violet's saying about how, how, people are just not going to look into that because that's going to be their understanding of what happened. I think that's potentially like dangerous. But. Yeah, but that, well, hold on. Um, Cause that's this, this point seems like- Yeah, really, it's like, hold on. No, no, this, I mean, this just seems like really speculative to me and I'm not sure it actually correlates to like how his work is like produced and how it circulates, like who actually watches it and so on. Um, like, you know, well, it's on the BBC. Like this is like a pot, and it's. Oh no! It's all over the internet. I know, yeah. but that, but, but that, <laughs> you, know? you don't think that goes both ways? I mean, that inform that will just. You don't think that necessarily informs like what this what this is formally like with the tone yeah, it yeah. takes and so on. It's like, I mean, there are yeah, there are ways I wish uh, the work was different and it more closely resembled works that don't circulate 
like in those channels and so on but it's just a different thing that's why that's why i made the point about like thinking of thinking of it in terms of propaganda almost more almost more so than as a work of art because for me like that that gets uh that gets to just like the crux of like what what it, you know what it actually is much more well, then so the than, question is like what is it propaganda for for what party or for what for what ideology because that's where i get i also was uh, i was left a little confused there i don't know if it's so cut and dry right there's been a lot of he's like a little evasive about what his actual politics are he says right. he's like you know he's like broadly of the left but that he's like sympathetic to certain like libertarian arguments i think that comes across really strongly in i mean his david graber is the is yeah the, uh... yeah epigraph yeah the yeah. epigraph comes from uh david graber but i don't but at the same time i don't you know it's not as simple as like uh he makes these films on behalf of like the corbin wing of labor or whatever right that's not going on either um so uh so on whose behalf is it propaganda uh i'm not quite sure i just I maybe just... not on whose behalf but like what is the on on what ideas behalf also, what is his definition of power? Because um, he brings up power so often in the series, and he often talks about how, for instance, um, in the age of individualism, politicians lost their power because they were no longer, you know, they were no longer governing over these like masses. They gave it away to financial institutions, right? Right, but not being accountable to masses of people is a kind of power. Well, also, it's not true, like. But that, you know, that's again, like, like, again, he ignores, like, he, there's nothing about Occupy Wall, he loves, he quotes David Graeber, but there's nothing about Occupy Wall Street, there's nothing about, or Black Lives Matter, there's a brief thing about, there's a brief gesture towards, like, the Floyd protests, but, like, or he says that there were, there was no opposition to the Iraq war. Yeah, that was, that was something. Or do you, do you mean there was no effective? opposition to the black, the iraq war or what what i don't know because you just breeze by that well then he, I, but so then the question is like so he's he's makes these claims that are i think wrong also that like politics is no longer useful like i just to say that it's no longer useful it's the same it's just as useful as it ever was the question is, that i have is and maybe for that i was asking dan is to what end like why does he make these claims that are that are so easily shown to be not true or, and if so, this is, this is where the propaganda element comes in, where you're kind of generalizing, where he's generalizing and he's kind of saying, oh, there's no, there was no opposition to the Iraq war. Here's footage of Americans, like just, you know, watching TV and consuming hot dogs during the Iraq war. Is that really the argument? I mean, cause that, I don't know, that that's, it isn't yeah. an argument. Like what's he arguing for? That's my, that's. Crazy. I don't think he's arguing. I don't really think he's arguing that there was no, absolutely no opposition to going to Iraq, right? I mean, is, I mean, this comes up, this is treated like. Um, I don't think it says absolutely no, but he does say like there was. He says this. I wrote it down in my notes. Something like there was no opposition. And I remember like yeah. verbally, like, like take, throw, taking my headphones. Well, off the level, I, like, <laughs> but insofar, but isn't that, is that not like in the context of talking about like the political and media classes in which like there was like way less resistance to, to, to invading Iraq uh, illegally? Uh, but he doesn't say that and he shows footage of like people in the street so but we but we should bet i think we should back up a bit because i don't think it's because where the 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 argument 
ends is a big problem. It's again, we like we keep talking about these inaccuracies or like kind of ambiguously not true or sort of true things, but the endings of all of these films are the same and they all feel very rushed, right? Like, cause I was rewatching other films and it's like, there really isn't any continuity between them, except for that he has certain preoccupations that he's vaguely interested in and things that he covers more than once. Um, but sometimes, you know, the politicians do have a narrative. Sometimes they don't have a narrative. Sometimes Al-Qaeda is real. Sometimes it's not real, whatever. But the end of the films are always the same where it's like, He's like, you know, he plays some upbeat music and he's like, what we need is to create new narratives and to find meaning for ourselves and to do it. And it's like this very rushed. There's a little bit of a like wanting to have it both ways here. We want to say that like meaningful socio-political change is possible through collective action and so on. We're also saying that like, it's just one of the conditions of this moment of capitalism that like, we can't really imagine a better, a better world that exists outside of this like horribly oppressive, utterly brutal uh, system that we're, that we live within. Like, it just seems to me that, you know, I think he lands somewhere in between, he actually lands somewhere in between. There is a future that we can try to work towards and the more like Mark Fisher sort of capitalist realism, you know, like, like the, we can't imagine a better future. It's easier to imagine the end of the world than the end of capitalism and so on and so forth. So I think he, I think in truth, he actually lands somewhere between those, those two things. And also to me, that feels truthful. Like it probably is somewhere between the two. Like I'm, you know, I'm not a full no future guy. I do think that like his, series what it's trying to do is maybe like crystallizing a lot of the double speak and kind of the um the way what you said like these two things that people often say simultaneously of you know the capacity of collective action or social change to say the uh, to change the world and this like pessimism about the absolute reach of capitalism but maybe i I think like the problem is trying to tell this like macro story because when you tell a story from top down in that way, that's the contradiction that you see. But if you tell the story from, you know, when you tell local stories, when you think about local resistance, I mean, that's my problem, you know, the and that's what maybe Violet was getting at too, taking these like canonical Western positions lands you in these, giant impossibilities and these giant uh, hypocrisies. But if you take regional and local position and you look at histories of local resistance, I don't think it's so simple as, you know, it's not just these two options. There are people and there are, there have been people and there are people who are contriving like other ways um, and other possibilities for the world that I don't think find room in his telling. What sets him apart, though, I think, is and what makes uh, you would lose the pop element of of his entire project if you if he were to kind of drill down into these stories, into these local stories on that level. I think like having this kind of sweeping scope is really kind of what makes him who it makes his films uh, sets his films apart and makes them able to kind of uh, insinuate themselves into the internet into this kind of like internet world that uh distribution network that dan is describing but who can tell these sweeping stories 
it's only like people of of the empire, right? Well, I don't think he effectively can, but I think the film kind of imitates its platform here in that like it just sort of dissolves in in a lot of ways when once it reaches the level of like trying to bring all this together into some grand theory, much like the, you know, uh, much like like looking at a bunch of Wikipedia pages, you know, till like four in the morning by the end of it you're like i you might like at 4 a.m you might be like got it like i see that it's all coming together and then you wake up in the morning and it's like nothing is there like i guess that i you know i'm trying to figure out what's compelling about about his work the footage of ballroom dancing he just keeps you just over to like nine inch nails instrumentals over and over and over but it is, it is like a video, it, sometimes it is like video art, right? I think it, perhaps a kinder interpretation of it is that you can kind of come in, watch a little bit, bit of it, leave, come back. And it's, and, and again, you know, the, there are little tricks in there that are irritating and kind of, if you try, but if you try and sit down and really just try and like learn, learn. I think you just absorb it, right? I think the, maybe, maybe you're just supposed to like absorb it like ambient music. And you just let this, and then the scales fall away from your eyes and you see like the world as it is. And the formal mode of connecting dots is really emotionally compelling. I mean, it's really emotionally compelling to see connections emerge. Yeah, I think, I think that's true. And that's the pop element. So, and maybe if you're like, and maybe we're asking too much of these films. Uh, and if we are somebody just encountering we're asking too much YouTube, of an emotional history of the world. <laughs> Okay, I'm just trying. You know, to, no, no, no. But I'm you, trying to gonna, thread this needle, here. <laughs> and I'm trying to think try. through this these pop ass elements of it that like that this is supposed to be popular. It's supposed to be ha have broad appeal. So in order to have broad appeal, I think it it necessarily has to be like reductive, and then make these sweeping emotion. And it has to use like it has to use like pop music over ballroom dancing. Like it has to do that in order to kind of like. Come be compelling in this pop way. That's this is an argument I'm piecing together from scraps of my memory right now. So <laughs> I think I think I think that's like uh, I do I do yeah I basically like agree with with that. I think that account some of the methodology is definitely just derived from the fact that this is like a BBC movie and and it's made for it's made for a wider audience than like you know, like a Tom Anderson. I mean, it really seems like some of the aesthetically, like it reminds the most thing it most reminds me of is like nineties music videos. Yeah. Like it's like straight from that world to me of like Aphex Twin and uh, whatever, Nine Inch Nails, all this music that he has on this, on this. And we're, and like, a, yeah, we're running out of time, I see, but I just wanted to like put it, cause I, we, one thing that we've attended to like very little about, about the work is just, is what it is visually um, which, and I honestly, like, um, yeah, there's like some, there's some like clumsy, like, um, moves made in terms of pairing sound with image at times, but on the whole, like, uh, and this is, you know, the case with pretty much all of his films, there is a lot of like staggering images in there that like, are not going to dissipate. Those are not going to dissolve in my brain. They're lodged in there, uh, for a long time. And like, they're even, you know, they're, yeah, they're still um, sort of like, com yeah, there are combinations of image and sound from like even like Century of the Self that I still think about like very, very regularly. 
I think that, um, and this is in part, you know, what I'm, what I'm like gesturing towards with the calling the propagandist is like, that's what really sticks with you rather than the right, for me at least, than the rightness or wrongness of any particular argument he makes um, is just the arguments he, I guess he just makes uh, through purely audiovisual means that have nothing to do with him, like reading a text he wrote. Yeah, it is like, a, it's like a dream of a media dream by Philip K. Dick. But he also has just access to the entire BBC archive for free, you know? I mean, he gets to just pick things. And I agree, I think he picks some really wonderful things. I mean, he's sifting through a massive archive uh, and, and choosing things to, to, you know, present to us on YouTube. So that is definitely- A teenage Tupac interview was, was great, I thought. Yeah, yeah, yeah no, that was. Um, but, you know, he does have this immense access uh, and these are clips that are at his disposal that then he's able to stitch together, which again, it's just coming back to the fact that we can't ignore who he is, the where he's coming from and what he's representing, even if he's critiquing um, a lot of these big narratives and institutions and uh, you know, political formations, he's still a BBC journalist making a BBC documentary out of BBC archives. And to that point, what I just would like to say, sometimes I wonder, because obviously if you look at the YouTube comments beneath his videos, they'll, you know, people will be like, I can't believe this got past the BBC. And it's like, well, I can see how it gets past the BBC because you know, the, you know, libel laws in the UK are very stringent, you know, very, they're way stricter than they are here. There's certain things you absolutely cannot say in media, in print or on television. And I think the vagueness is sometimes a way around that, that, you know, you can talk about this, that, or the other, um, and takes things at a surface level and not really dive in deeper. And I think that's, to the to its detriment because I, but that's just a I don't I don't think that's a very frequently acknowledged uh aspect of these films is that you know maybe there are long silent sequences because you can't say stuff on tv because you know the the I mean I was like at the end of um can't get you out of my head like the fourth person credited was like the legal advisor for yeah. the film. Yeah. You know? And I think it's it's probably safe to assume that's that accounts for why there's um there isn't more there isn't any like Jeffrey Epstein, Prince Andrew stuff in <laughs> in, in the film, right? Um, no, he should do a separate one. Which seems like a so like a layup for him. Yeah. That that just seems like such a layup. Like just I was waiting and it never came. Maybe it's in the next thing. That's what I'm saying. He's gonna do a special like mini like like a, it felt like a kiss except for it's all epstein i would i, I appendix like, a appendix epstein my, but my my pick for the uh my pick for the like the the english documentarian of who has to make the the epstein film and he actually he told me once like right after a q a that he would not uh but nick broom <laughs> nick broomfield uh oh my god a, yes uh, yeah spectacular um, but he would not huh <laughs> No, you asked no. him this. <laughs> I did. I just. I asked him if he if he thought he would make an Epstein film, and he told me. Um. He he told me he didn't think so. You guys just keep going. I'm gonna jump. Uh, <laughs> Dan, Dan, I feel like I was just. We're just like 
uh, beating you with sticks. As <laughs> Violet, I'm used to it. <laughs> but you held your own. I feel like Dan yeah. really held his own here. Oh yeah, no, I've been thinking. I've been thinking about this work for a long time, and and yeah. like I, you know, um, yeah, and part of why I like it more is because like he risks seeming really corny or earnest, or sometimes I even like, you know, like the broad strokes he he paints. Sometimes like I kind of admire, you know, uh, some of the risky courts in trying to get at something that I think is like ultimately like I'm glad it's part of the documentary landscape today. Well, I'm, I think you've actually kind of, you haven't turned me into like a full wholesale fan, but I think uh, I definitely appreciate it, his work a little bit more. All right. Uh, love you all. Bye. Yeah. Well, Dan had to leave to do some important things and maybe it's, it's time to wrap this up. We uh, covered a lot of ground, but Violet, first of all, thanks so much for joining us. No, this was so fun. And for old time's sake, we had a uh, we had a request. Maybe you could tell us a little bit about uh, the last thing that you saw. Well, so Bertrand Tavernier passed away yesterday. Um, there's so many middling French bullshit directors out there, and I would argue that Tavernier was not one of those. Um, I was, and before I watched. Uh, probably mainlined all this Adam Curtis stuff and it got into my brain and it, the ghosts of the past were awakened and the new order was actually like the old order and the patterns uh, repeated themselves. I watched uh, Round Midnight, uh, which, which stars Dexter Gordon, uh, an actual um, jazz, and it, it's sort of like a composite of these um, jazz legends who were um, living in France and it's like a really just a, it, you watch it and it's just like I, I, I you know it's an incredible movie and it's so emotional and kind of but not overbearing and it tells this really just kind of like lovely and also sad tale of friendship and addiction and you know the the inability to connect with you know uh you know uh, uh your daughter or you know someone else in your family, or really anybody, without the help of music, um, and it's—I mean, I—I I thought it's—it's just—it's um, an incredible film, and I would encourage uh, people to check that out. I know that the Criterion Channel had a bunch of uh, Tavernier films on there for a while. So, this episode of the Film Comment Podcast is sponsored by Mubi and made possible by our subscribers and by the members and patrons of Film at Lincoln Center. The Film Comment podcast features original music by Greg Einge. Film Comment is a publication of Film at Lincoln Center. Since 1962, Film Comment has been the home of independent film journalism, publishing in-depth interviews, critical analysis, and feature coverage of mainstream art house and avant-garde filmmaking from around the world. Visit us online at filmcomment.com.